Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The meeting that President Putin had with his business leaders yesterday, uh, that when the doors were closed, uh, President Putin told those business leaders, if you think that you will not do business with banks and organizations that have been sanctioned in order to not be punished, well, hear this, if you try and do that, I will punish you. That's the kind of message that President Putin is sending to those business leaders, gives you a picture of this question of sanctions and the idea, and it's not just about this sanctions, obviously, but the idea that oligarchs are going to go to President Putin and say, this is too much, we can't do this. That's not the society that Russia is. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to read from the Wall Street Journal here in a little bit on uh, how their, their feeling is and, you know, they know more about this than most people there at the Wall Street Journal editorial board, that these sanctions are pretty tepid. And, man, Biden yesterday, first of all, he sounds like a really old man. But, man, his his ongoing talk about it'll take months, it'll take months, you know, and this is a good start, and there's more to come. There's more to come. The stronger sanctions are to come. If not now, when? Does the president of Ukraine actually have to die today before you get to the strong sanctions? And, by the way... According to Keir Simmons, whose reporting has been great on NBC, that is the plan of Putin. You know what this is? This is the attempted assassination of the Ukrainian government. This is an attempt to remove President Zelensky. And what we do know about President Putin is he gets fixated on individuals. Just think about the fact that uh, he won't say Alexei Navalny's name. He's so fixated. And I think he's fixated on removing President Zelensky. by whichever means, uh, and I think that's what this operation is about. Now, you know, again, what uh, Sergei Lavrov says is, is that they do want to install a government that isn't a, a puppet government of the United States, but you know, the Ukrainian government is not a puppet government of the United States. We've seen again and again di- differences between President Zelensky and President Biden. That's democracy. That's democracy. Is Putin going to actually have his troops... Find President Zelensky, who, if you've been following this story at all, everybody knows his face, right? He's a, he's a fresh-faced young man who seems really earnest and a patriot and brave. And is Putin going to have his forces kill that guy today? I think it's, uh, speaking just coldly rationally here, if I'm Putin, I think that's a bad move. I think you capture him, you get him out of the country, you know, you put him on trial for bogus charges or whatever. But I think if they actually kill him in the streets, that's that's I think world opinion could turn pretty sharply on that. Obviously, that's just an opinion. I mentioned this story earlier. I don't know if you saw that there's this little island out in the sea right off the coast of Ukraine called Snake Island, which I'd never heard of before. It looks like it's, you know, about the size of Alcatraz. Tiny little island. Anyway, there are Ukrainian soldiers on there, and Russian military boats pulled up to the island and announced, and th- th- there's audio of this, but it, you know it's in a foreign language, and I've just seen the translation. The Russian ship, which had speakers on it, announced to the Ukrainians, and they're talking back and forth over walkie-talkie, announced to the Ukrainian soldiers, you know, put down your weapons and surrender. And the Ukrainian soldiers actually responded. I think there was 12 of them. Uh, President Zelensky tweeted this out yesterday, how sad this was, but brave. So the Ukrainian soldiers said back to the Russians, go F yourselves. 
And the Russians killed them all right there. Immediately. That is the... That is the... Well, first of all, that's the reality of what's going on in Ukraine right now. And secondly, that's the sort of thing you're going to see a lot of, I think. Is that level of... Um, pushback of willingness to to fight and die for their country. Oh, I've got another great one coming up. I'll get to. I have to read the transcript. Have you seen the video making the rounds of the old woman going up to the Russian soldier with a similar attitude? I'll read the transcript of that this hour. It's something. But getting back to some of the commentary, this is Michael McFall. He's a former ambassador to Russia under the Obama administration. He's talking about how likely it is the sanctions are going to do anything. And at the same time, I want to say this very clearly. I do not believe that even the most wide-ranging sanctions will change Putin's calculus in this war right now. Uh, because Russia's a dictatorship. So those oligarchs we're talking about, you know, they can't get on the phone and say, hey, Vladimir, you know, I re- you know I'm really suffering here. I can't, I can't get my yacht into St. Bart's. Uh, will you please stop the war? It's not how that system works. Remember, a lot of these elites, you know, we, we think of them as being like business people, right, and independent from the state. A lot of them have their money because Putin put them in charge. The two largest banks that were uh, sanctioned yesterday, uh, both of them, German Greff and, 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 and the, the head of VTB, Andrei Kostin, they were, they were put in those jobs by Putin. So they don't have any leverage against Putin. That's the first thing. And then the biggest thing, the second thing, as you show these incredibly brave demonstrators, and I really want to uh, express my respect for them, but yeah. but they, they're not going to the polls. Uh, you know, they're going to be arrested. And so the, the, the boomerang effect of sanctions in a place as rich as Russia and as powerful of a dictatorship as Russia is hard. Last thing, Putin has oil and gas. And the world will continue to buy that oil and gas no matter what. That gives him a buffer against sanctions for a long, long time. I didn't want to be knee-jerk partisan about Biden's announcement yesterday. I waited to see what pundits of all stripes had to say about it. Because, you know, it's over my head, uh, these sanctions and how they work and how powerful they be. But on CNN, their immediate coverage, Aaron Barnett, who's been done, done their financial show forever, said, hey, look. The Biden administration put out a list of five oligarchs they were going out after earlier this week. And Aaron Burnett on CNN said those five oligarchs aren't the five richest. They aren't even in the top 10, 25 or 40 richest oligarchs in Russia. I will know they're serious when they start going after people at the top of that list. And I thought, wow, that is some good information to have and very disappointing. Going further with that, the Wall Street Journal the nation's leading financial newspaper. This is from their editorial board. Targeting Russia's oligarchs. President Biden announced new sanctions against Russia on Thursday, but they were hardly the massive consequences he promised. It's an unfortunate first sentence. The financial markets figured that out quickly as they staged a sharp rebound after Mr. Biden's remarks. A number of people hit me with text yesterday on how the, the uh, I think it was the S&P, actually finished up yesterday. Why did the markets rebound? Because they quickly looked at the list of sanctions and realized, oh, okay, this is, this is not going to disrupt anything. So back to business as usual. Me, back to reading from the Wall Street Journal. Even more disappointing is the failure to go after the heart of the Kremlin's power. Mr. Putin runs Russia like a gang in which wealth is shared among cronies, but the general population sees few benefits. The system has made the Russian leader and his friends extremely rich. 
The living standards of average Russians are less important to Mr. Putin than protecting his group. These elites maintain their power so long as they support the regime. Much of that wealth is stored abroad. Oligarchs have bought up mansions, sports teams, businesses outside of Russia, while sending their children to study and party abroad. Many Western capitals looked the other way as money poured in, and financiers, accountants, lawyers, and real estate agents also cashed in. Yet on Thursday, the U.S. Treasury sanctioned only seven more Russians, three sons of Mr. Potin's cronies, a wife, and three bankers. Serious sanctions would bar every Russian connected to the regime from entering the U.S., Europe, and the U.K. and seize their foreign holdings. We didn't do that. The restrictions should extend, the Wall Street Journal says, to every wife, child, mistress, cousin, uncle, nephew, and close close friend they have. Universities won't like it, but students related to an oligarch should have their visas revoked. That's actually what Erin Burnett said on CNN yesterday. She said, you want to get to these people? Make it so their kids can't be at Georgetown University or UCLA, where their their parents paid to get them in. Make it so their mistress can't be in some uh, you know expensive hotel suite for when he comes visit. Because we know who these people are. Cut off the spigot. But we didn't do that yesterday. And uh, Biden was asked about this a couple of different times. And he, and he was asked about going after Putin individually. And he said, we're still considering that. We're still considering that. And it's not just Biden either. Boris Johnson, the UK, a lot of these oligarchs have uh, uh, apartments and uh, golf memberships and, like I said, you know, mistresses and art art displays and all this sort of stuff in London. And Boris Johnson didn't go after it either. Why are we still scared to pull the trigger on the really serious sanctions? If you know the answer to that, I'd love to hear it. Um, text line 415-295-KFTC. I haven't come across, what are we scared of? Is it because, as we just heard from Michael McFall, that Putin supplies so much energy to the world? Is, is Are we actually scared of him? Why are we hesitating to go that next step with the sanctions? I'm, I'm confused by that. Like I have no answer for, for what we're waiting for. If if now, with Russian troops on the streets of Kiev looking for the president so that they possibly can kill him, if now's not the time, I don't know when is. I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by this. Tell the story about the old lady confronting the R- Russian soldier coming up. It's really something you're going to want to hear it. Again, if you have any answer to this stuff, text line 415-295-KFTZ. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Uh, I saw that uh, hard Mountain Dew hit shelves for the first time this week. That's right. That is Mountain Dew mixed with alcohol. And they're testing out some slogans to get the word out. Oh, really? Yeah, take a look. First up, there's hard Mountain Dew. How did I end up in a Denny's three states away? (laughs) Oh, boy. Next up, there's Hard Mountain Dew. Even the kids on Euphoria won't touch this. And finally, there's Hard Mountain Dew, Florida in a can. <laughs> now that's a good joke. Wow. That's what it is. I gotta get the word out. Now that's a good joke. Florida in a can. I have, uh, I believe I've uh, woken up in a Denny's three states away and wondered how I got there. I think I've done that uh, more than once. 
Um, and I uh, am willing to admit my unhipness. What's the kids of Euphoria? Is that a show or a TikTok channel? It's or? a TV show it's on a HBO. TV show on HBO. And is that uh, what all the what all the cool people were watching? Uh, kind of. Thank you, Alex. Let me all check that out this weekend. God, I was around some people the other day who one of them mentioned a show I'd never even heard of the show not only had i not seen it i'd never even heard the title and somebody brought it up and there's a couple of oh yeah can you believe the way danny is divorcing his wife and blah blah they got into a conversation about how they were so into it and i thought i am so that's the problem with modern um media is that it's just it's so niche and if you run into somebody who's into the same thing as you it's it's awesome to talk about but it ain't like the old days where everybody watched the same show every night um, I had no idea what they were talking about. I just kind of chuckled along. Yeah, yeah, he's something. And then, well. Do I need transition music for this? I don't know. This is a super serious. Um, then it's a viral video going around, but it's in, uh, I don't know if it's in Russian or Ukrainian. It's probably in Russian. It's an older woman, you only see her from behind, who walks up to a Russian soldier on the streets of somewhere in Ukraine. And she walks up to this Russian soldier and says, who are you? Soldier says, we have exercises here. Please go this way. So he's trying to shuffle her along. She's not supposed to be standing there. What kind of exercises? Are you Russian? Yes. So what the F are you doing here? Says the old woman. Right now, our discussion, right now, he's saying, you know, move along. Our discussion will lead to nothing. Your occupants, your fascists, what the F are you doing on our land with all these guns? Take these seeds and put them in your pocket. So at least sunflowers, sunflowers are the national flower of Ukraine. That's an aside for me. She gives him some sunflower seeds, like actually to grow sunflowers. Take these seeds and put them in your pocket. So at least sunflowers will grow when you, when you all lie down here. Meaning when you die and you're laying in the ground. Right now, please, our discussion will lead nowhere. Let's not escalate the situation, please, says the Russian soldier. Some people have pointed out the restraint of the Russian soldier um, because, you know, sometimes in occupations or, you know, if it was ISIS or whatever, you don't stand there and politely, after being yelled at, ask the lady to leave. You'd just shoot her. And he did not, although maybe he knew he was on video. Back to the woman. Uh, Let's not escalate this situation, says the soldier. The woman says, what situation? Guys, guys, put the sunflower seeds in your pockets, please. You will lie down here with the seeds. You came to my land. Do you understand? You are occupiers. You are enemies. Yes, said the soldier. Woman. And from this moment, you are cursed, I'm telling you. Now listen to me, the soldier said. I've heard you. Let's not escalate this situation. Please go this way. How can it be further escalated? You effing came here uninvited, you piece of S. And then she walks away from him. I don't know if she's a crazy person. I mean, with her whole sunflower seeds, put these in your pocket so they'll grow where your body lays dead in the dirt. I don't know if she's a crazy person or she's just an angry old woman who's very unhappy that her country's being occupied by Russians. But that is some of the attitudes you're seeing from Ukrainians. So whole the whole the videos are inspiring. Scary but inspiring of all the men showing up at various locations in Kiev, for instance where they're handing out guns. And these guys are getting very quick, like two-minute training on, you know, this is how you load the thing, this is how you point it, and this is how you shoot it. Now go out there and protect your family. And the, 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 they're signing up in droves 
to come get the weapons and fight because they're, you know, wife, kids, girlfriend, mom, dad, whoever, are down in the subway stations underground hoping to survive the bombing that has started. And if if I failed to mention it already, Russian soldiers are on the streets of Kiev. And oh, by the way, why have I gone from Kiev to Kiev? Somebody texted, I did not know this. Now I'm embarrassed. Russians call it Kiev. Uh, the country of Russia believing Ukraine belongs to us. Ukrainians call it Kiev. So if the Ukrainians pronounce it Kiev and only the invading army that is willing to kill them to subjugate them calls it Kiev, I'm going with Kiev. And I suggest you do also. I really realize it sounds a little hoity-toity to take on some, you know, new European pronounce, pronunciation of towns or whatever, but it's not. It's it's supporting the locals there. One more really serious note here. Uh, picture that was tweeted out by Jonathan Swan yesterday. Newborn infants from the neonatal intensive care unit at a children's hospital in another town in eastern Ukraine. The newborn infants were moved into a makeshift bomb shelter. The neonatal doctor there the chief of the unit said can you imagine this is our reality and they got a picture of the little babies there in the hospital being put in a bomb shelter to try to keep them safe as the russians roll into kiev uh, or ukraine in general uh more on all of this all on the way if you miss an hour of the armstrong and getty show you can get it in podcast form at armstrongandgetty.com armstrong and getty This really is, as I tried to write this morning, a, a campaign that will shape the world that we live in, that I live in for the rest of my life, mm. that my children and grandchildren live in. And we need to see it as that. Uh, if Putin can succeed in this, we'll live in a, in a world where might rules over right. There's just no other way to put it. Yeah, and that's, that's what was confusing to me when I was talking to... Um Mike Lyons this morning, a military strategist that we always go to. So there's a journalist right there. That's David Ignatius of the Washington Post, who I've been reading for decades, and we've had him on the air many times, um, talking about how his kids will be talking about this. His kids will grow up in a different world because of this. Various politicians, oh, we, we need to play Ben Sass. Uh, a number of politicians, particularly the Republicans, because there is a bit of a split on the Republican side of the aisle over whether... Not this is a big deal, but a number of Republicans that I like talking about this is a big deal. This is a very, very big deal. Well, if it's such a big deal, and I think it is, if it's such a big deal, how does the world not mount a better defense, either militarily or financially or, or whatever? Why are we holding back the uh, the big sanctions and... I'm not arguing for U.S. troops in Ukraine at all, but it's just, does it make sense to anybody else how incongruous it seems? How can you on one hand say this is a major reordering of the world, this is giant, this will have terrible ramifications, eh, but not enough that we are actually willing to fight to stop it? Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, last night when he went on TV said, look, men, go, go get guns. we got to fight for our country. Nobody's going to come help us. And he's right. Nobody is going to come help you. Why? I, I don't completely understand it. Um, let's hear a little more from David Ignatius. And then, by the way, I got some uh, non-Ukraine stuff I'm going to move into. 
the problem for the Russians is that seizing Kiev is not as easy as they may have thought. It's obvious that they intend to install a puppet government there. I think Putin may be caught in his own illusions. He, he's talked repeatedly in his speeches to the country and his crazy rambling essay he wrote last summer about the oneness of the Ukrainian and Russian people. And he doesn't seem to understand that Ukrainians have developed an identity that's their own. They don't feel that they're kindred spirits with another country. They feel that they're Ukrainians. The latest breaking news is that Russia, Putin has announced that he's ready for negotiations. He's ready to negotiate with the uh, the government of Ukraine. I assume that would be a pretty one-sided negotiation where he would say, you resign, you quit, and we won't kill you. I think that's his negotiations. Uh, whether Zelensky is willing to leave the country with some of his, um, some of the other members of the government and, and, and set up a, you know, a government in another country that we recognize as the real government while Putin puts in a puppet government. I don't know. Or is Zelensky willing to die there in Kiev? Um, and not go along with the farce. I don't know. China has announced it supports Russia and backs Putin's claim of negotiations. So that's the latest on the geopolitical thing. And we've got a great guest coming up a little bit later, and we'll get back into it. I wanted to talk a little bit about COVID, which hasn't come up yet today. An interesting poll that there are a lot of people out there that think masks and vaccines are still still should be mandatory. So I don't feel that way, but got to recognize that this is the way a giant chunk of people think. Maybe not where you live, but maybe nearby. A new UC Berkeley poll in California found that of Californians, but I'm sure this is true in other parts of the country. You know, if you surveyed the people of Austin versus the rest of Texas or, you know, you get my drift. 61% of California voters support California's policy of having students, teachers and staff wear masks the rest of the school year. 61%, only 37% disapprove. I find it interesting that we could be this far apart. I have zero fear of COVID. Zero at this point. I have, you know, I I mentioned I got kicked out of a a restaurant the other day. They asked me for my COVID card. I said I didn't have one. They said that I had to leave. I walked in there with no fear of catching COVID. I walked out of there with no fear of catching COVID. I didn't have a mask on. I would have no, if they announced today that my kids could go to school without a mask, I would say, awesome, no masks, and send them to school, and I wouldn't even think about it. It wouldn't cross my mind. So you got that point of view, which I think a lot of you share that are listening to this show, but it's only 37% in California, and 61% who would be horrified, I guess, at the idea of eating in a restaurant with somebody who didn't show his vaccination card or sending their kid to school without a mask. How could we be that far apart on a subject that is so, um, I was going to say mathematical, but scientific is the better word, it can be nailed down with with science and 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 studies and and numbers of whether or not your kid needs to wear a mask at school. And the numbers are on my side. It has been nailed down study after study after study. It doesn't do hardly any good. And the risk is so, between the fact that the masks do no good for kids and the risk is so tiny, it's nonsensical. But 61% of Californians want their kids to wear masks. Is there 
Do you have different information than I do? And again, I keep saying this. Feel free to pass it along if you do. Or is it just some sort of weird... I hate to be uh, patronizing or dismissive, but is it some sort of weird, like, comfort food sort of emotional thing that you just feel better having your kid wear a mask to school? Because you don't have any numbers to back up your argument. You just don't. So, but it's not even close right now. 6137 in California, and depending on where you live. And there are parts of California, there are 24 school districts in California that are ignoring state law right now. 24 school districts that are ignoring state law. And by the way, the state is not trying to enforce their law, which weakens all laws. But um, it depends on where you live. Depends on where you live. I I don't quite understand. I never thought at the beginning of the pandemic, if you'd have told me politics are going to play a major role in vaccinations and masking and everything, I thought, how would that happen? Oh, it's happened. And it's going to be happening for quite some time. The um, uh, only other part of this I found interesting, same poll, Asking the same question at the beginning of the school year, it was 81% of voters wanted their kids to wear masks in California. It's down to 61%, 20-point drop since the beginning of the school year is pretty big. i got to believe by the ending of the school year in uh, May, June, it's easily going to be under half. So thank God it will be less than half to start next school year, and I hope we can get rid of the masks then. I know for a lot of you listening, you're talking talking about masks for school kids next year. We haven't worn masks in a year. So I I know. Depends on where you are. Up there's Ben Sass up on the cable news making the argument why it's so important what's going on in Ukraine. Not important enough for the West to fight for it, but important apparently. More on that on the way. And, uh, you know, you can always add to any conversation if you want. Oh, I got to talk about fighting my ambulance bill. My $3,200 ambulance bill that I got. I got to mention uh, how it's going trying to fight that battle. Uh, we got a great guest on the way next. Stay tuned. Armstrong and Getty Show. So, um, we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks how there are a number of things that are happening that are uh, that are new. So we've got the, uh, you know, the, the biggest deal military hap- militarily happening since World War II, and we're going to see it in such a different way between social media and smartphone videos and all that different sort of stuff it's just it's it's stunning i mean i was i was, I was taken in twitter videos yesterday of uh of, of things that i would have maybe read about years later in the way wars unfolded in the past and now i see them like as they're happening or moments later it's it's just stunning how about we talk to somebody who knows a lot about this craig Timberg, national reporter covering technology for the Washington Post, joins us. Craig, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. I mean, worried about Ukraine. But other than uh, that, I'm fine. I am too. God, I was watching the President Zelensky on TV last night, looking scared, and he should be, um, yeah. uh, and saying, "Hey, nobody's coming to our defense, hey, guys. We need to get, grab our guns and defend ourselves." And um, you know, getting to the point I was making, the fact that I'm seeing this stuff. 
in practically real time from the other side of the world is amazing. And I know you're writing a lot about how this is a this is a different era for covering wars. Yeah, I mean, not just covering, but, you know, as you say, almost anybody can follow the images um, that are coming out of an active war zone. It's really extraordinary. Um, and I, I think what we've been trying to do in our in, in our stories is also contextualize this a bit. I mean, just because you see a, a video doesn't, you know, the video may be real, but the audio may be faked uh-huh. or the commentary may be faked. And so what you have is this incredible new access to information, but also incredible new opportunities to spread disinformation. <laughs> you know, it's so like both right. things tend to, tend to run together. And so, you, you know, we have to be kind of sophisticated consumers of this stuff, I think. Yeah, I know. I have been um, skeptical of everything I've seen. Like, I, um, I uh, was taken in the story yesterday, I don't know if you saw this one, of Snake Island, where the, uh, right. the Ukrainian soldiers there were told by the Russian battleship, you know, right. surrender, and they said, go F yourselves. And then the Russians killed them immediately. And I thought, you know, that's a great patriotic story. Is this real or not? So I had to do some searching around on the Internet to try to figure out if it was real. Maybe it was fake from the Ukrainian side. I I take everything with a giant grain of salt. Yeah, I mean, look, war and propaganda really go together. I mean, the, the whole concept of a fog of war is based on both the speed and the confusion and the disruption, but also the, you know, the efforts to manipulate how we view this and just take control of narratives. And of course, all sides in a conflict are going to take advantage of that. And, and that can be disorienting. Um, so like the issue we sort of wrestled with in our story is, is all of this stuff coming on Twitter and Telegram. And so what's YouTube Telegram? And I read your story. Social media oh. <laughs> fuels new type of fog of war in Ukraine conflict. I'm familiar with Twitter. Obviously, I don't know Telegram. Telegram is um, is a very widely used encrypted chat app um, that is, you know, it's popular here. It's sort of known as being popular with the far right, but in fact, it isn't popular with lots of entities around the world. I mean, when the trucker convoy was happening in Canada, a lot of that organizing and, and proselytizing was happening on Telegram. Okay, and so they're they're a very important player. They're they're um, it was founded by a couple of um, Russians, but Russians who are not buddies with Vladimir Putin and since left the country and. Um, so they're, you know, they're a very important source of communication and imagery from this conflict. It's part of how Ukrainians are talking to one another about it and also how they're talking to the wider world. And so you can be, you could, I, I could telegram you, you could telegram me, but you also have a lot of these groups where it's not like Facebook where it goes to everybody, but it goes to like a, people have opted into a particular, you know, Ukraine fan club group or whatever. Well, here's a very general question about this. As, as I, I read an article earlier, it might have been from you. I read an article earlier this week about the, the role TikTok was playing um, mm-hmm. and you know Twitter and this telegram that I had never heard of. Um, uh, is it doing more harm or good, do you think? Not that we can control it, but I'm just wondering, if is this, is this a step toward more solid information and free flow of information, or is it making it worse? I don't honestly know. Um, there's certainly a, a volume and immediacy of images that is unlike anything that's ever happened before. I mean, not only is this a war in 2022 when we ha- everybody has a smartphone and everyone has a high-speed data link and everyone knows how to use social media, but it's also in a very developed country. Like Ukraine is not is hardly a backwater. So you know, they you have that you have the data links, you have the proliferation of devices to really bring all this stuff and blast it across the world. At the same time, 
a lot of people also know how to manipulate it. And it, you know, I was talking to um, a researcher who, who is in that story. Who so he's a Danish businessman, but he's working in Portugal and he's watching the war in Ukraine on Telegram and Twitter, et cetera. And he says what he's doing is he watches the videos to, to for example, try to determine whether the tanks rolling down the street are Ukrainian or Russian, which is difficult because they both have roots in sort of Soviet technology. And he looks for landmarks that he can identify. Like, mm. say, I saw them roll by this particular bridge. I know there are Soviet tanks with such and such. But he ignores the audio. He says, I can't, all the commentary, I assume, I can't trust. So that's interesting, right? I mean, you know, but he's an unusually astute and nuanced <laughs> consumer of this information. I think for the rest of us, I, I think it's going to take a little while before we have a settled view on whether this is helping us understand this war or making it harder to understand this war. Sometimes, like, too much data can be Absolutely. confusing. Um, I'm going to put my uh, my belief that it's doing more good than harm, especially depending on how it's used. So I've been talking a lot today about uh, how, I hope I'm wrong, but I think that President Zelensky may not live through the weekend. He might not live through today. You know, Russian troops are on the ground in Kiev looking for them. I hope I'm wrong, too. But it'd be one thing to read in the newspaper the next day that Russian soldiers shot the president of Ukraine. It'd be another thing if he's in a room with a cell phone saying the Russians are right outside. I just want to say to the world, you know, you know, stand up for Ukraine. That would have a completely different impact. Yeah, I mean, you may recall a few years ago when these live streaming video services started getting off the ground. Um, you know, Facebook Live was one of the first. Uh, there was, I can't even remember all of them. There was a sort of a crush of them maybe three, four, five years ago. And we all did stories about how appalling it was that people started, like, killing one another on these live videos. Yeah. Right? There's a robbery and they get shot. And also people started, you know, dying by suicide in some right. cases on these live streaming services. So. You know, it, it, the kind of dark side of this has been apparent from the beginning. Um, I don't particularly want to watch my kids, you know, watch the president of another no. country get killed by Russian no. shoulders on social media, right? At the same time, I, I think you're right that there is something undeniably powerful about this, right? The images, you know, there's a subset of people who, who learn by reading, but I think most people learn by watching. And images are just and particularly images that move are just so incredibly powerful and images that are move and are delivered immediately in something like real time are even more powerful. Oh yeah, we we've, we've talked about this for years for for whatever reason, you know, the the uh whether it's Rodney King or George Floyd, that sort of a story can happen. You read about it, it can make some noise. If there's a video of it, oh my god, different. the way it affects it's people. Completely different. And yeah. it's completely it's a much different. More visceral thing. Yeah. And, and I wonder if Putin as an old man doesn't realize that as they're going through the streets of Kiev trying to find, uh, you know, government officials that they're planning to jail or kill, the power of those videos that could turn the world opinion against him so quickly. It's a great point. And, um, you know, I hope you're right. I mean, not even in a more general sense that just like the, the you know, the imagery of horror being committed, um, you know, stirs the world's conscience. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of a romantic notion. I mean, I, I think the flip side that I worry about is it also numbs us, right? On some level, uh, you know, you feel like, oh, yeah, well, they've killed a bunch of Ukrainians, and then, you know, before that, they were killing a bunch of Rohingya, and before that, I mean... Right. I, how, I, how old are you? I'm 51. Yeah, okay, so we're, we're around the same age. <laughs> it's the next yeah. generation that's going to sort this out, because they're going to grow up with it, and maybe they will be, like you just said, they'll be so numb to seeing these things, by the time they're 40, that nothing has an impact. I don't know. 
Yeah, I do. It's funny. You know, I have two kids in college now, and, you know, they consume news and information in a way that's completely different than when I was their age. Fascinating. And they, they get, yeah, they get, a, they get a much wider array of sources coming at them through social media and such, and in some ways that's great. But in some ways, of course, you know, it's a little easier to go down some ideological rabbit hole. Sure. When, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, like when you see something that agrees with your views on the left or the right, it's, it's natural to believe them. And then, of course, the algorithms keep serving you more stuff exactly like yeah, that. Whereas yeah. when I was in college, you know, I was reading whatever. I was reading the newspaper or occasionally watching the news. And, you know, there's a, there's a way of like for all of our flaws, I mean, we do sort of like draw people's attention to sort of settled understandings and sort of the political middle as much as we can. And so I don't know, it's, it, it, there's a new world out there and it's, it's, a, you know, we're trying to make sense of it all the time. And I think this is a new moment in that new world. Well, a good way to follow this is to read, read Craig Timberg, the national reporter covering technology for the Washington post. Really appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it is the next generation that's going to sort this stuff out for now. We're watching this war in a way that we have never watched a major conflict in the history of mankind. And it's uh, rather than reading about it the next day in the newspaper, you can watch it live in some cases. As I'm watching right now, bombs exploding over Kiev and Russian soldiers in the streets and Ukrainian people going to ATMs and, and getting guns and money. If you miss an hour of the program, grab it on the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty.